You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with James Morrow. He's the author of Towing Jehovah and Shambling Towards Hiroshima. Thank you for joining me, James. Well, you're very welcome, Rick. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind your latest novel. Well, Shambling Towards Hiroshima brings together three passions of mine. Uh, I'm very interested as an as a armchair historian in the birth of thermonuclear weapons, uh, I'm a fan of the uh, phenomenon of Japanese monster movies uh, and uh, the Kaiga phenomenon. And uh, I also love Hollywood horror films from the 1940s. And I was able to bring these three obsessions together in one story about an attempt to leverage a Japanese surrender in 1945, an ending to the uh, Pacific War, uh, by demonstrating the Navy's biological weapon that they've been developing in tandem with the Army's physics bomb. This Knickerbocker project has brought forth a generation of giant bipedal fire-breathing amphibious iguanas, and uh, some of the scientists who worked on the biological weapon believe it should be demonstrated. It should not be used in a sneak attack on Kyoto or Hiroshima or, or Tokyo. Uh, it would be only fair to let the enemy know that this terrible weapon exists and give them an opportunity to surrender. So the the viewpoint character is uh, a Hollywood actor named Sims Thorley, uh, vaguely based on Lon Chaney Jr. And uh, it becomes Sims' job to put on a rubber lizard suit, destroy a model, hypothetical Japanese city, it's called Shirazuka, uh, in front of the delegation, terrify them, uh, convince them that there's no point in prosecuting the war any further because the Navy has the ultimate weapon. And if, if Sims can give the performance of his life, then World War II will end. You know, when I read this book, one thing that struck me, it's about, movie-wise, it's about the Union, a man who dons two very different kinds of makeup the man of a thousand faces makeup of Lon Chaney Jr., and the very different rubber suit makeup of the Godzilla monsters. Talk, tell me about your interest in makeup. Uh, well, I have loved horror movies since I was a kid and used to watch uh, shock theater on television hosted by Zachary. And I subscribed to Fari Ackerman's uh, magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. Uh, and even though this assignment for Sims Thorley, that is to say Lon Chaney Jr., is rather different from playing a werewolf or a mummy or, or a Frankenstein-like creature, uh, it still requires uh, a kind of pantomime talent. It requires a really good shambler. It requires a consummate lumberer uh, to, uh, again, you know, put on a, a show that is so damn convincing that, that the delegation will be, will be spooked. Uh, of course, the great pantomime artist of all time when it comes to horror films is Lon Chaney Sr. 
And uh, it was very hard to see silent films when I was a kid. But there was, and this was in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but there was one revival house near sort of the, the city limits in Germantown. And, and I did get to see Lon Chaney Sr. as the Phantom of the Opera when I was only about 13. A memorable experience. It sounds like it marked you. <laughs> yes, it, it did. And, and so... Uh, you know, uh, this this book was a lark. Uh, much of my fiction gets into pretty heavy philosophical issues, and uh, and uh, I've been accused of uh, uh, presenting ideas in a way that gets a little bit wearying. So I've said I'm really going to have fun with this. Uh, nevertheless, I also figured out a way to, uh, you know, to bring in my uh, moral. Uh, passion and outrage at the fact of thermonuclear weapons. Uh, I, I guess I surprised myself. I mean, you know, Rick, every, every novel is sort of like jumping on a freight train. You know, you jump off a bridge, you land on a boxcar, you don't know where you're going to end up for sure. I mean, you know you're going to probably stay in the continental United States. But uh, So I was surprised that it takes a turn near the end into being a kind of serious lament for the victims of, of Hiroshima. Well, tell us a little bit about um, the, your creation of the Knickerbocker program, which is really a hoot. It's like you had, I, it was clear you were having fun, but it's, it's fun that's really pretty complicated and, and twisty smart. Um, well, I had to do a lot of research into the, into the Manhattan Project, and I learned uh, that, in fact, there was a minority sentiment to demonstrate the A-bomb to... Uh, the Japanese and perhaps to the world in general. One of the physicists who uh, did the groundwork for the, the atomic bomb, Leo Szilard, the Hungarian genius, had tremendous moral qualms about what he'd done. It was actually Szilard who drafted the letter that appeared on Roosevelt's desk and jump-started the Manhattan Project uh, Albert Einstein, the most famous scientist in the world at that time, was willing to put his name on it, and that's why FDR read it and, and was so impressed. Um, there was also a sentiment uh, within the War Department, not by Stimson, not by the Secretary of War, but by a guy named James McCloy, who was the Assistant Secretary of War, who said, Mr. Truman, Mr. President, we have a moral obligation to tell the world that this terrible weapon exists. We, to, to, uh, to indulge in a sneak attack would forever tarnish the moral standing of the, of the United States. And I said, well, what if that argument had prospered? There were, there were good arguments against uh, the demonstration, and I respect and, and understand the logic behind keeping it a secret. But I, I just wanted to play with uh, what is often called alter alternative history. And I figured, okay, if it's, if it's not the Manhattan Project, um, I, I could not have it simply be uh, an um, alternative history for its own sake, a possibility for its own sake. What if there was also a biological weapon and so being developed in tandem with, with the atomic bomb? And that's the one they decided uh, to demonstrate. Well, uh, could you talk about creating the character of uh, Sims Thorley? He's a really delightful narrator, and you have a lot of fun with his voice, don't you? I, I do. Um, I guess uh, he includes a lot of myself, because I could be pretty cheeky, as he is. Uh, he's, he's burned out and jaded. I don't think that's quite happened to me yet. Uh, his career crested years ago, and, you know, mine's going to peak any any day now, I guess. Have to face that fact. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he is um, uh, a lot like Lon Chaney Jr. in that uh, he's got some issues with alcohol, more in the later part of his life, whereas uh, Lon Chaney Jr. wrestled with alcohol throughout his career. Well, he didn't exactly wrestle with alcohol. I think he kind of joyously swam in it. You know, he just would consume a bottle of bourbon a day, uh, and this has been corroborated by several of his, of his colleagues. Um, I, made, uh, I made Sims Jewish, which was not true of Lon Chaney Jr. I think I just made, made him a more interesting character at one point. Uh, I mentioned that his, uh, his, his grandmother uh, forbid him to ever play vampires because she thinks that uh, vampires are anti-Semitic. She says, you know, our people have been running away from crosses for 2,000 years. I'm not going to have you play a vampire. Uh, and like, like Cheney Jr., Sims has a famous Hollywood father, in this case a screenwriter, not, not, not an actor father. Um, and I also, uh, because he's Jewish, he's the object of some anti-Semitism uh, among the FBI agents who, who initially have to give him a security clearance. And, and so I got some satiric mileage out of that conceit as well. Um, but it was, it was fun to write a character who's, who's got a sense of humor, uh, burned out, uh, has some perspective on himself, is in despair. I'm not going to give the ending away, but he's got reasons to grieve, and he's actually contemplating suicide in the framing story. The, the, most of the action takes place in 1945, of course, uh, but it's framed by Sims in a hotel room. He's uh, at, a, at a monster movie convention in uh, 1984. Uh, anticipating the, the uh, I guess, the election of, uh, or the re-election of, of Ronald Reagan. And uh, he's very depressed by, by that thought, among other failures in, in his life. So he says, the first line of the novella is, is uh, whether or not this will be the world's longest suicide note or something more redemptive, uh, only time will tell. Now, this novel is kind of harkens back to some of your previous uh, broad satires. I'm thinking of Towing Jehovah in many ways. But before this, you'd taken a, a turn to, to uh, I think, more serious and detailed historical novels. Tell us about the genesis of those novels. Um, well, I guess that as a science fiction writer, I wanted to see what it would be like to write a novel about science. So it's sort of science fiction by other means. Uh, around this time, for some reason, a lot of us got interested in the, the foundations of the rationalist uh, empirical wor world picture. You've got Neil Stevenson writing his uh, magnum opus, this Baroque cycle, four different volumes. You've got J. Gregory Keyes writing a kind of alternate history called The Age of Unreason, which I think stretched out over four different novels, the premise being what if Newton's alchemy was the case rather than his celestial mechanics, his physics, a uh, wonderful conceit for, for alternate history. Um, and I uh, was utterly transfixed by one particular history of science, a book by Edward Harrison called Masks of the Universe, in which he talks about the Renaissance in a very unusual way. For Harrison, the Renaissance should be thought of not just as a, a time when uh, uh, classical antiquity was recovered and when there was a great flowering of the arts, 
It should also be thought of as a nightmare, as a universe that was crazy, that had bought into a a supernatural understanding of reality, a paranoid understanding. He calls it the witch universe. And for almost 300 years throughout the the, the high renaissance and even extending into the enlightenment, uh, you've got this uh, uh, astonishing fact of rational people, some of them scientists, some of them members of the Royal Society, nevertheless believing that demons were the case. And Harrison had this one line I've never forgotten about how if science hadn't gotten traction, if science had not come along when it was needed, European society would have destroyed itself as a function of this belief in witches. And I read that sentence and I said, Jim, if, if that's not an idea for a novel, then, you've, then you know, wishes are horses. Uh, and you've got to try to do something with that. And then after thinking about it for years, I came up with uh, the, the conceit of a, of a heroine who would live through this amazing rotation from the, the Renaissance worldview in which demons are the case and demons drive the universe to what we now call the Enlightenment. And it became a very personal story because her aunt was executed for witchcraft in, in uh, Restoration England. And she's, before the aunt dies, the aunt makes her promise to try to come up with an argument that will uh, overturn the, the Parliamentary Witchcraft Act of 1604 that gave this outward appearance of legality and legitimacy to what the witchcraft, what the witch courts were, were up to. Now, witches are perennially interesting. Why do you think that is? Um, well, of course, they're uh, a, a ready-made metaphor for that which we demonize. And uh, um, I would argue that The Last Witch Finder is a very feminist novel. I mean, women enjoyed, uh, if that's the word, it's not, uh, suffered a disproportionate amount of the, of the persecution in the, in the late Renaissance and, and early Enlightenment uh, for supposedly having signed the devil's book, for supposedly being in league, uh, in league with Satan. Um, and yet it's important to me to, to, to point out that uh, this was not just about finding yet another rationale for discriminating against the poor or women although that or Jews, even though that was certainly going on, uh, uh, both from the bottom up and from the church hierarchy on down. It was also about theology. And as you, you mentioned my novel, Towing Jehovah, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a critic of the received wisdom of the, uh, of the, the Western Christian heritage, uh, as anyone who's read my fiction has noticed. And, uh, you know, a lot of what's going on uh, is, is uh, really uh, very rational, on-the-page, legitimate theological uh, uh, Christian theology uh, simply being institutionalized as, as witch courts. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, whatever one thinks of the Enlightenment, and of course there's a critique to be made of the Enlightenment that it sort of overplayed its hand uh, concerning how rational we could be about organizing society, whatever one thinks of the Enlightenment, I think it came along just when it was needed. Uh, needed. I believe that Edward Harrison's critique is correct, that, that European society may very well have destroyed itself with non-existent demons. I've been speaking with James Morrow. His newest book is Shambling Towards Hiroshima. Thank you for joining me, James. Well, you're very welcome. Let's do this again. Next time I get inspired to do something this crazy. (laughs) Thanks. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.